Welcome back to How They Train. I'm Jack Kelly, and today I'm joined for the second time by Joe Skipper. If you haven't already, go back and listen to my first episode with Joe after you finish this one. Joe just had a pretty insane performance to win Ironman Wales, uh, and I'm keen to get deep into the specifics of the training he did into the lead up in that. Um, I reckon we'll go equally deep about the Ironman World Champs as well, the drama around whether Joe is or isn't going, and if he is, what the race will look like. I want to get into some doping chat with Joe as well with some recent stuff that's gone on in his life. And then speaking of drama, I want to get Joe's take on the current triathlon drama, shit talk and theatrics that's been a little bit more prevalent in both fun and serious ways as of late. Joe, thanks for joining me once again, mate. Thanks, mate. You all, you forgot to add on to the list, patron of the show, Joe Skipper. Yeah, <laughs> mate. I uh, I have one mate who will occasionally help me with the podcast a little bit if I if I need some jobs done and that kind of thing, or it's getting a bit too much for me. And he loves you. He loves your episode. Like where I, I'll like send. He's like my guy. I'll send an episode to if I need an opinion on something. And mate, he's your biggest fan after that episode. He, he's not a triathlon man, so he knew nothing about you, but he loves you. He just thought you were so funny. Uh, and and so when you signed up to my Patreon, which by the way, thank you, mate. I appreciate the support. He was so pumped. He was more pumped than me. And uh, yeah, that's saying something. That's all right, mate. Cheers. I just thought I'd get some uh, good training advice off you and Steve and uh, I could do with all the help I could get. And it obviously seemed to pay off uh, with uh, the win at Wales. Yeah. See, Steve had a good performance on the weekend as well. So maybe there is some secret sauce over on the Patreon exclusive podcast, The Training Diaries that me and Steve do. Largely just talking about Steve's sex life, really. A lot cheaper than signing up to Tim Reed's coaching, isn't it? Five pounds a um, a month on uh, Patreon, as, yeah. as opposed to hundred and something. What Tim would uh, what Tim would charge, and I can get all the deep juicy details, can't I? From uh, from listening to the Training Diaries episode, <laughs> yeah, just about thirty times per week cheaper. Um, <laughs> and and yeah, like me and Steve both know what Reedy does, so we pretty much just spit his facts anyway. So good point. Um, is that you saying that your training in the lead up to Wales was pretty much just copying things that you've heard off how they train? No, it was uh, pretty similar to what I normally do, to be honest. But it was just the fact that I'd been able to get a decent bit of training in. And uh, obviously, four weeks of altitude seemed to definitely uh, pay off. And um, yeah, it's just keeping it consistent over the last six, seven weeks, really. What were your weeks looking like? Because I was following along on Instagram, like I always do with your with your life. And yeah, it seemed like you were doing some some solid training. It seemed like you had a little bit of a training camp environment happening around you. Yeah, to be honest, it was pretty similar to what I said last time when I was on. We were doing a similar thing to that. Um, but it was mainly um, the fact that I had my friends, we call him Techno, um, pacing on the bike uh, for sessions and like supporting for like long runs and everything like that. He's um, He normally helps me with that kind of things back in Norwich, like he's a local guy. And then my dad was out there as well. So he was helping with like bike mechanics. He would go to the food, like go to the shop when he was here, get the food, like cook the food and stuff like that. And then when we were on long rides, they would come out in the car and like support us with like bottles and stuff. So it really meant you could train like well. And um, and then that because they were like helping us with that kind of stuff, you could like recover a bit better. And I think that just made a really like big difference. Um, and then um, the other guys that were there was Tom. He does the podcast with me. There was a German guy, Fabian. And then there was another guy from from Wales, Lewis Donovan, and then Tom Decker, former like pro cyclist, was out there for the first ten days, I think eleven days. But it was just a really good group, you know. We could all push each other in like different um, disciplines, like some on the swim, some on the bike, some on the run. And then, if for anyone that hasn't been to Fontremoe, it's like an awesome place to go with like other athletes, like out there. The Norwegians are all out there, like 
um, Christian, Gustav, and then also some of their other squad members who were doing really well were training there. There was like Daniel Beckard, Sam Laidlow, who you had on the show recently. So it's a really good environment. Plus, like, I mean, Techno, who normally paces me, one day at the track, paced Mo Farah because we saw him there and like started talking to him. And I said, uh, I said, Mo, what's your session? And he said, uh, 6K tempo. I said, do you want him to pace you? He said, oh, yeah, if you don't mind. So Techno got um, got the gig pacing Mo Farah around the track. Oh, that's insane. What takes all these people to font Rameau? Like what makes font Rameau the place to, to be as an endurance athlete? I think it's just got a bit of everything. Like it's got really good trails for running. It's got a running track there. It's got a swim pool, 25, 50-meter pool. Um, you can do like hilly runs. You can. There's not really many flat runs, to be honest, but you can run flatter at the lake. And the mountains are awesome for cycling, like quiet roads, but they're not like when I've been to the Alps before, you have to, you generally have to do like a lot of 20 K climbs, 15 K climbs. There's no smaller ones. Whereas out here, you can get some like flatter roads on the plateau and like smaller climbs, but you can equally do like a 20, 25 K climb as well. I think it's just got a lot of varied training and it's just a really nice place. Like the scenery is stunning out there and it's, it's just quite, quite a nice relaxing place to go. And I, I, I think when you see other athletes going there and they seem to have good results, then it makes you think, well, I'll go there next year. And then someone else does that and then they might have a good result. And then it's kind of like, uh, um, it kind of catapults it, doesn't it? You know, and then like more people see that and then more people want to go. Because when I first went there in 2016, I went there initially because I'd seen Frederick Van Leerd used to go there. And uh, he used to go there every time in June before I'm a niece and like and he would like go and race niece in July and he would like win it nearly every year and I thought wow I wonder if there's something in that and I was training for challenge Roth at that point so I, it was on the same day I think as niece so I sent him a message and said mate can I come and do some training with you I'm training for challenge Roth because I thought if, if he knows I'm training for niece he's probably not going to want me there is he you know like train me and show me the ropes and stuff and then I end up racing him at, at another Ironman but I thought if I'm doing a different one he's not going to be too bothered and he said yeah yeah come out uh, but unfortunately for him, about 10 days or two weeks before we were supposed to go, he broke his collarbone. So I ended up going by myself. And there wasn't really many other triathletes at that point back back then, you know, that were trained out there. But now it's like everyone was there. It's quite a good atmosphere, really. I mean, like there was even some of the ITU guys there, like Taylor Spivey and her squad were there, Vincent Louis and um, I think that like them, Martin Van Riel. So there, there was a real mix of short course and long distance guys. And when you're on the track on a Saturday and you see everyone there training, it's just a really good environment to be in. So all the, out of all those people that were there, did you sort of go in and link in with them and, and do much training with them? Or despite the fact that, that you were there and all of these other guys were as well, did you sort of just stick with your own little group and, and do what you were meant to do in your training? Or is the fact that Christian and, and, and those guys, Gustav, I assume, but I'm not sure, certain, like, uh, is the fact that those guys there is just like, fuck this, I'm going to disregard my sessions and just go do a ride with these boys? Uh, well, we did train with quite a, quite a few different people. We normally send them a message and do it. But um, it was normally like, if it, but like, I don't know if many other people do, but I mean, I think the training in triathlon is pretty simple anyway. You know, just a lot of people overcomplicate it. But we went for a run with like Christian and Gustav and, like in the evening and, and uh, like it was like an hour run I think they were doing an hour and a half so like you know if you're doing stuff like that and you're both doing a run you can go together and um, that was good it was a bit of a social like we had um, at that point we had Tom Decker 
who was on the bike with us and uh, Tom had his playlist on, which was painful, but it was quite funny. It was like running around the mountains to bloody Celine Dion, some 80s tunes that, um, <laughs> oh God, I'm trying to think, that Before You Go-Go song. Do you know the one, what I mean? The one like that's uh, Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go. Yeah, yeah, running to all them, like yeah, through the track. mountains. It was quite funny. I mean, Christian was like singing along to them. <laughs> <laughs> this goes back to like a point that me and Steve made on our on our training diaries um, side podcast that we do is the secret to the Norwegians, as far as we can tell, is just how much fun they have. Like, does anyone enjoy training more than them? They're, they're, they just always are doing like little kid sort of stuff. Like they're just out there having fun. And that's exactly what that story sounds like. Yeah, yeah. They do seem like um, they like it. But to be honest, it seems like everyone out there really likes it. I mean, we were doing, we did some track sessions there. So with, uh, Taylor Spivey, like Tom was doing some, some, some he did uh, some of her reps, but she kind of like uh, tricked him a bit. She lulled him into a false sense of security and told him that she was going to do the six minute efforts at 335k pace. And Tom was struggling a bit with the altitude. So he was a bit like, well, that'll be a decent effort for me. I mean, it tracks at 1900 meters. So it takes a bit, bit off you. Um, and then she did. And that, that was why he wouldn't join my session because he was like, I'll do that. It would kind of be a bit of a like, um a loosener into it you know into the track doing the track work up at altitude and then she ended up doing the six minute effort like 315 and like butchered him he said it was like a bloody full-on effort for him <laughs> and he said to her thought you were going to do 335k pace she said oh it's the uh it's the carbon shoes they're like they give you about 20 seconds a kilometer <laughs> <laughs> this is the thing more people need to take that into account when they're talking about how fast they do their like their reps because for example let's say you did like five by one K reps and you in 2016 used to do them in 330. Well, in, in an alpha fly or an ASICS Metaspeed speed sky plus or a shoe like that, that's now a 310, but people will still like, you know, they'll still say, Oh yeah, I'll just go do them in like 330. And that effort's actually way easier than what say 330 used to be. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so he got kind of, uh, but he did have carbon shoes on, I think as well um <laughs> he wears those weird carbon carbon shoes that are just like a no brand no one's ever heard of them doesn't he he wears yeah three six three six ones i think they are but he was a bit annoyed because one day when we left the lake someone put one of his shoes out the car and uh that was never to be seen again it was left down there so he uh he ended up having one shoe hey <laughs> you, you've mentioned a name a couple of times and i mentioned in the intro thomas decker i was fascinated following this little drama on your instagram um so for those guys who don't know, those guys and girls who don't know, Thomas Decker was a, an ex-pro cyclist who was really like caught up in the uh, 90s and early 2000s era where, where doping was super prevalent. Like he's, a, he's come out as a, a doper himself when he was racing. And, and you were copping a bit of, a bit of flack online for, for having someone with such a, let's say, dark past in endurance sport in your training camp and training with them, like people asking a few questions of you because of that. Um, take me into into that drama and, and how that unfolded. Well, first of all, he came on the training camp because Tom met him at a gravel race in Kenya. Um, like I think it was last year, like it was on it was like some charity gravel race and uh, I think they got on quite well. And then when we were looking for people to come, Tom said, like, do you mind if he comes? Um I was like, what's he like? He said, oh, he's a really nice guy. And I thought, oh, all right, then, yeah. Because I and at first, you know, you kind of do think like, oh, like, is this going to look bad? You know, like, obviously, he's been convicted for drugs, you know, like, if you, you know, you know, might, you might think like, does it look good and stuff like that? But he's a, he was a really nice guy. And like, he's not like training competitively anymore. You know, he's just doing it for a bit of fun. And um, 
like we got on really well out there and he was like helping us with some of the support for some of the bike rides and uh, he's got um quite a few stories as well so like for training it was really interesting to hear some of the stories that you know from his past but it was interesting actually hearing about how he got into into uh doping and it sounds like you know because of what pro cycling was like back there it was almost like a case of like badder role models you know on the team and you kind of got kind of like pointed into you, you know you kind of got funneled into that way because everyone seemed like they were doing it and then mentally I think he thought that that was the only way that he could do it to compete in the bigger races and uh, he says it's a shame you know that he ended up getting into that and with what he knows now and like what he knew towards the end of his career when he was like doing altitude training he um, kind of wishes that he, he did it properly you know because he still managed to win some races clean before he was doing the drugs it was just in the bigger races where he said like it was just a whole nother level you know like he'd go to win in some of the pre the races in the warm-up to the Giro and he'd be thinking god my form's good you know I'm winning these and he goes to the Giro and he said he can ba barely hang on you know he's like literally struggling on all the climbs and he's like what the hell's happened you know three weeks four weeks ago I was like competitive and now I'm like struggling to just get round um but yeah some people did comment on it and in a way you can understand why you know because like if if you are training with someone like that you know you you might think like why is someone why is someone who's clean training with someone like that who's convicted doper but you know everyone deserves a second chance don't they and if some people are nice people you know and they're they're a good laugh you, you know you, and, and you get on well then it, it's it would be a shame not to train with them and you know if we if no one got a second chance you know people like him could be really isolated couldn't they you know they'd have no one to go cycling with or running with because everyone's like oh you know he took he took drugs i don't you know 10 15 years ago whenever it was you know i don't like him but you know it doesn't mean they're not nice people did he have one sort of story that stuck out to you about doping did you did you go into that with him um well i've read part of his book and like one of the stories that sticks out is like when he's a twenty when he first did it and he's 20 or 21 years old so you think you know you imagine a 20 21 year old triathlete that's just moved up from juniors haven't they you know you they would be if you were a 20 21 year old triathlete doing 70 point threes you'd be probably one of the youngest on the circuit wouldn't you and everyone would be like you know it's like a kid wouldn't they racing you know the, the series so you put yourself into thinking about that and then he contacted Fuentes and then he meets him in a hotel in the middle of nowhere he walks in to the room Fuentes is sitting there he doesn't speak Spanish Fuentes doesn't speak Dutch he sits down, they they get the they get the needle in there, they take a blood transfusion for him, and then he's got and then Fuentes is gone and he's or he he ends up leaving. Fuentes like uh leaves, they go their opposite ways, no not a word said to each other. And it's a hotel in the middle of nowhere, and you think like and that was the first time he did it, and then he says there's no going back from that, and you think, wow. It's just crazy, isn't it? And like it makes me. It always makes me think, and I, I wonder if your brain goes there as well. And it's conversations I've had on the the podcast in the past. Does this happen in triathlon? Are there bigger names than we think who are going into hotel rooms and you know doing blood transfusions or you know keeping EPO in their fridges like they did in the old days? Doesn't it just make you think, Joe, as to whether some of the guys you're racing are doing that same thing still? Um, not really, to be honest, like I kind of like, I mean, I think that you could wonder like whether or not people are doing it, but like, I mean, it's a shame. It would be a shame to think like people's performances are all based on like whether or not they're, they're taking drugs and stuff. And I kind of just do 
my thing and I just see what I can do. But I think there's definitely probably is some drugs in, in triathlon because there's age groupers that have been caught for it. So it kind of makes me think, well, if age groupers are getting caught for it, then there must be some pros that are out there doing it. But it's hard to, you know, to to think about it really. And like, it's a shame, it would, it's a shame to fit, put people's performances down to certain things like that. One thing I would say though, if you want some more stories, if you listen to the episode on our podcast that we did with Thomas Decker, that gives a real insight because we actually interviewed him on the show. And there was some really good stories on that, but there is still so much more we could have done, but we, it was like nearly an hour as it was. And going back to that, that camp that you did. And like, I, I want to talk about these heaps because your performance in Wales was like, oh, it's got to be up there with one of your best performances of all time. And, and in really weird circumstances where things didn't go right for you and, and you managed just to keep it together. So we'll go, we'll go into that in a second, but just to go back to the camp in Font Rameau and, you know, you said that you're, you're doing training that was pretty similar to what we talked about on our, on our last episode we did together and, and that all the big dogs were up there training. When you guys are out there training together and, you know, you're doing those 90-minute runs with Christian Blumenfeld and Gustav Eden and, and, you know, Daniel Backengard's there and some of the other best triathletes in the world who are, who are all getting ready for Kona, um, are you guys talking about the race? Are you talking about the Ironman World Championships much? Are you... Are you guys talking about everyone's form? Are you looking at what everyone else is doing? Is is there much like um, yeah? Is there much chat about that, or are you all just friends who pretend it doesn't really happen, and you're all just doing your sort of training and and getting on with things? I'd love to tell you that we were strategizing about the Ironman World Championships, but to be honest, it was more like lads on tour asking Christian and Gustav who they think's hot, what gossip's going on. Uh, <laughs> You know, uh, what's the what's it like on the ITU circuit? Is there many parties? What did you do after the Olympics? Did you did you celebrate? You know, and uh, more about like uh, just typical kind of like stuff you'd imagine if there's four guys going out on a run. There wasn't much talk about like uh, strategizing for any races. It was more like lads on tour, to be honest, for an hour. <laughs> well, you can't say that without me asking follow up questions. Like it's not really <laughs> the domain of how they train, but you've got to throw some some like Norwegians under the bus here. Who does Christian Blumenfeld think is hot on the triathlon scene? Um, not really sure if he uh, said that, but you can't tell. You can't say stuff like that, can you? Do you know what I mean? Like when you've been out for a run, you know, with them, like. It's like to say, Jack, and what stay, what what happens on tour stays on tour. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's like how boxers they don't talk about what happens in the sparring room. That's the triathlon equivalent, except it's not about who got bashed, like who got bashed by the other person. It's about who said they want to sleep with another triathlete. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kind of like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, yeah. If you if you like, I guess like I have this idea in my head that you're all up there at altitude, and you you know you're doing all this hard training and. And you're all there with this like shared goal of trying to become the Ironman world champion or win a big Ironman like like you did at, at Wales, and and that it's just all training. And it, it, I guess you do get lost in the in that side of triathlon a little bit and forget that everyone just is like a normal human being, don't you? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, I mean, like that's that's the thing. Like that's why that's why one of the things why it's quite good to go out there and train with all the different people because you know it it makes the time fly by. You know, and normally, like I mean, I don't know what it's like where you are but I know um from what Steve says on his training diaries you know it's, it's hard sometimes where you live to find people that can like keep up with you and stuff like on a regular basis free sessions especially where I live you know most of the people here I train with are like age group but so out there it's really nice to actually have people that other pros that you can like train with and you know you you can um 
have a, have a chat with and stuff while you're going along. Hey, Joe, what was the hardest session you did while you're at altitude? Um, 300k rides through the mountains, um, 4,000 feet meters, 4,000 meters of climbing, and then a, a run off the bike. And the, the ride was like 35 k's an hour, like average speed. Um, that was the hardest one because it came after um, like in, in a normal training week. But that was one day that I remember being pretty, uh, pretty tasty. And why did you decide to do a 300k ride with a, a brick run off it? Was it just a special occasion or do you regularly put stuff like that crazy in your training program? Um, well, to be honest, it was just a mate's 30th birthday. So we thought about doing something for it. And then we thought 300k ride for his 30th. That will, uh, that'll be memorable. So it was uh, pretty much just because of that, to be honest. Um, but that was, that was, that felt pretty tough because most of the climbing came towards the end as well. So I think in the last like 80K, there was like two and a half thousand meters. Um, yeah, something like, I think that maybe 2000 meters in the last 80K. So, you know, you had half the climbing in the last 80 to 90 Ks of the ride. So it made it, that was what made that pretty tough. And then there was a horrible headwind, um, but it was just a long, grueling day. But the, in terms of like intensity wise, some of the brick sessions we did on Tuesday were pretty tough. So it was like um, intervals, you know, like on the bike, um, threshold reps or like pushing actually yeah one what i did as well where we did like a where we went for a com a strava com on the bike and it was like a 35 minute climb that was pretty tough i mean but there was no real one session where it was like you were absolutely floored if you know what i mean and then like if you did other training sessions in the day they like they might not be quite so hard so there was like a few days that i felt were pretty hard um but not met necessarily any harder than the ones before because you can't really be consistent can you if you're like completely killing it like that but the 300k ride was definitely one that i remember sticking out that day just feeling pretty drained afterwards and I, I another thing that i always like think about but never really hear about is so like you'll see on instagram that people are wherever it is they're up at an altitude training camp and they're doing all of this training and i guess it's like the typical highlight function of instagram like everyone just posts these highlights and so you'll hear like altitude camp and like it sounds really like romantic and it, you sort of glorify it in your head and you think, oh, like I wish I could do that. Like I wish I could be like Lionel Sanders or Christian Blumenfeld or Joe Skipper and do these, you know, awesome training camps in these in these great locations. It just looks so perfect. Can you, instead of just like sh like telling me the highlights, can you talk to me about what an average day looks like on training camp from like when you wake up in the morning to when you go to sleep at night, what, what does the whole day look like? Um, well, I'm not really much of an early riser. So it's probably going to sound really lazy to be honest, but normally I'd get up at about, you know, seven thirty to eight, eight o'clock in the morning, something like that. We just have a breakfast, um, uh, say if we're meant to be going out for a bike ride at nine, 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 nine fifteen, or something like that. I'll probably end up being a bit late. If you talk to the others, um, maybe if I, say if we're, you know, on a Wednesday, let's say for instance, on a Wednesday, you know, that's like a longer ride. We we might be doing like a four hour ride. So, um, uh, but that's quite a big day. We've got a swim and a bike as well. So on the ride, when we're out there, we'll have my dad there. And um, if he was coming out with someone will have made a GPX file, we'll give it to him. Then he'll leave after us at some point, have some bottles in the car, meet us on the ride, you know, maybe have some like food and stuff like that. Um, and then we'll kind of do when we get back from the ride, have something to eat um say that might be like half one have have a kip or something like if you're knackered and then basically get back up like you know after a power nap have a coffee have a bit of a chat with the guys 
go for a swim at around four and then do a run after the swim and then like come back. My dad would have probably done like dinner or something like that, have dinner, chill out, relax, and then obviously go to bed like later that day. And then going into a Thursday would be like, that would be one day where you'd I'd probably get up a bit later because Tuesday and Wednesday have been pretty big. So like I wouldn't set an alarm, you know, it would just be when I wake up and that's just like a long ride. I mean, sorry, a long run and a swim session. And then Friday, Saturday and Sunday are pretty, pretty tough. And I was talking to Sebastian Keenley. I don't know if you ended up listening to that episode or not yet, Joe, but he was talking about the training camps that he used to do leading into the Ironman World Championships and the Ironman 70.3 World Championships um, when they were a month before the Ironman World Championships back in the day and sort of like 2012, 2013, 2014, when he was pretty much the best cyclist to ever have, have been in, in long course triathlon and um, and, and one of the best Ironman athletes to ever ever be in triathlon. And he was talking about how his training camps really just became cycling camps and he would do like, you know, 1,000, 1,300 kilometres of cycling a week and lots of really hard climbing where he would sort of just go out for a day and he would ride six hours just like medium, just like 240 watts for six hours and and he would be on a road bike or a TT bike, but he would he would barely run or swim. And you see these training camps in the in the mountains and you sort of – do tend to see that a lot of people just seem to ride their bike a lot and big long days of climbing on the bike and that sort of happens on repeat every every day and I know if you if you would talk to age groupers who go to like week or two week long training camps in the summer when they can get some time off work that's always what the training camps tend to be like these massive cycling days and the run and the swim are somewhat afterthoughts but with your time up at up at altitude on the training camp is is that the case? Is it is it a cycling camp more than it is a triathlon camp, or is it a proper triathlon camp? Um, well, I've heard that podcast actually, and that was that was a really good one. Um, but our um, our, our camps are more like triathlon training camps, like it's geared fully for tri- for uh, swim, biking, and running. You know, so like we're trying to do it balanced, and we're trying to improve on all three disciplines. You know, if we can. Um, but um, yeah, it's not like in particular a, tri- a cycling one. I mean, you might do a, li- a few more hours on the bike um, than what you might normally do, but that's just because I find it's like easier to do when you're in the mountains, you know, and like there's a group of you. But generally, it's fu- it's fully geared for like all three sports. And I think nowadays, like you need to because the depth is so strong and you can't afford to have really any weaknesses, you know, like, I mean, my weakness is my swim and then you're always chasing, aren't you, you know, and it, it does put you on the back foot. Um so if you were just doing like purely, purely like, you know, or really focusing on, on one sport, unless you've got a massive weakness in that sport, you might come back and then the other two might have gone down a bit and then you really find yourself on the back foot. And then with your, with that prep up at Font-Rameau in the lead up to Wales, were you, were you ch- like targeting Ironman Wales? Because I know that you'd sort of decided at one point that you weren't going to do the Ironman World Championships or did you always think, well, I'm just going to train through and and whether I end up going to the Ironman World Champs or not, that's what I'm going to target and whatever happens, happens. Um, and, and like, I mean, now that you have done Ironman Wales and you've won it, where are you at now? Well, to be honest, I was kind of always thinking of like plan, planning to do the World Championships in Kona. But the, the thing with me was, it was more what put me off and what made me say something is the fact of how triathletes are expected to do the world championships despite when 80% of them are going to make a loss and the, when you look at the costs of going there 
I feel like Ironman should be doing a bit more to help the pros, you know, and potentially like sponsors, if they want their athletes to go there and they want to make a big thing of it, you know, and like promote the spot, their athletes that are racing there, then they need to kind of help in some way because the costs are absolutely extortionate. Now, when I know some people would say, yeah, but it's an investment, but it's like, it's not really how it should work at the world champs level in a proper professional sport. I mean, you don't get Man United players paying to go and to, for their flights and accommodation to play Real Madrid and Champions League because it's a privilege and they're, they're betting on themselves to beat them, do you? You know, you don't get Rory McIlroy booking flights, hotels and paying an entry fee to go and play at the Masters. You know, yes, it's a privilege and it's a great sporting event, but these sports use the athletes that go there and the quality of the athletes to promote their brands, their competitions in the in the hope that they can make more money, for instance, on selling TV rights. Um, in Ironman's case, inspiring athletes to actually want to qualify for the Ironman World Championships and compete. And then... For instance, if we look ahead to this year and to next year, you know, Ironman World Championships, they've they've almost upped the capacity of Kona. But that, certainly for next year, it's like there's it's it's on two days. But I saw recently they put the entry fee up by thirty to forty percent to fourteen hundred dollars. So you get two and a half thousand people paying fourteen hundred dollars. You're talking like over three million dollars extra in um, in uh, entry fees. That's not including like maybe they get more money from sponsors at the expo. I don't know, because there's more people there, you know. So does that mean that them selling um, places at the expo cost more and they make more money? Um, I don't know, but it could certainly mean that. So even if we just take the entry fees into into account and then to make in between two point eight and three and a half million dollars, they get two and a half thousand people, you know, sign up for like fourteen hundred dollars a time. Yet the pros are getting nothing of it. Yeah, they're going to promote the race, you know, make a big thing of it. They're going to promote the athletes that are going there. They're going to do all this, but then nothing's getting filtered down to the pros. And it's almost in triathlon, like it's expected as a pro athlete that you should go there. You should spend a lot of your money in the hope that you get a result. And I felt feel that like Ironman should be helping out, you know, they get their hope, they're looking to promote the race and more pros should really make a stand and be like, you know, actually I'm not happy to be investing 10 to $15,000 of my own money in the hope, you know, in going to this world championships, you know, I want 10,000 or $15,000 to compete in the world championships because that's only going to cover my costs. And you're lucky that that's all I want because you're going to promote this and you're going to try and inspire more people to want to qualify for the world championships. So your brand can make more money and get bigger. I mean, let's not forget Ironman's not a charity. They're doing it to make money, but they'll use the pros that are racing the Ironman world championships to promote that for their brands. Yet the pro we're all happy to race for peanuts really. And 80% are going to go home with nothing. And, you know, if you're a young pro, you kind of feel a bit sorry for, for them. You know, they've got no house, not on the property ladder and they're putting a big portion of what could be a deposit for a house in turning up to a race that they might or might not get a result at. Yeah. This is triathlon mate. And I talk about this on here all the time. It's, it's like, but no one makes a stand. That's the problem. So they moan about it, but then they still turn up and then I'm like, well, why do we need to change? Like they're going to turn up anyway. Yeah. That's the problem. The only way it's going to change is if people don't turn up and then you get 40 pros that don't turn up, then Ironman can't have that because that's going to have such a knock-on effect that they have to go back to you and say, look, okay, we'll either up the prize money or we'll give you money to turn up because how bad would it look if four, if no, if like literally five people turned up to race it, you know, they can't have a TV coverage for it. Can they on the NBC, what they normally do, because it makes a mockery. 
Um, do age groupers then want to turn up and race because they see no none of the pros are racing? You know, it really that would really impact the race and ha- that would force a change. But until that happens, it won't change because people are still happy to turn up and race. So with this being said, are, are you going there now? I'm going now. I've managed like my, some of my sponsors are helping me. And uh, I think to be honest, like, you, you know, if, like you, you, you want to be there. And like when I've got the help, uh, as I've got the help from my sponsors to go there, then yeah, I'm going to go there. But I just feel like things need to change and more pros need to speak up on the mat. You know, I mean, like I said something, but it seems like I'm kind of like the minority. You know, I had a lot of DMs from people saying like, you know, other professionals like agreeing with it and, you know, sending it, you know, and like, and I think it has me saying something has made people think a lot more about it. Um, and we'll, we'll see what happens, you know, like later down the line further, or, you know, further down the line in the next year and stuff. But I, I really do feel like a change needs to happen for it to be sustainable because God knows what the price will be like next year. It might even be more expensive. Yeah, well, well, this is what I was going to say before is this is just triathlon because Ironman don't really care about the professional athletes. Like I'm with you that the professional side of triathlon, it's obviously like my passion. It's, it's what this entire podcast is about. But Ironman clearly take the professional athletes for granted and don't really care. Like their model is, is targeted purely at 40 to 50-year-olds who, um, you know, are having a little bit of a midlife crisis or or need some passion and direction or a goal or they see one of their mates do it and they they, they go, I want to do this Ironman. I want to be an Ironman or, you know, whatever it is, that's that's their market. They The pros are an afterthought for Ironman at best. Like at best, they're an afterthought. They're a billion-dollar company, mate, and to win their premier event, the Ironman World Championships, you make like a touch over $100,000. And like that's that- why you need to like, if you really want to make change to happen, you need to almost like boycott the main race because then if it affects, like you say, people aspiring to go to Kona and actually has that impact on the race, then they have to react because if it actually affects their business model and the people that are aspiring to go to Kona and age groupers don't want to go there, you know, and then the pros and then companies think, actually, I don't want an expo spot. You know, it's not really worth it. There's no pros there. I can't make the money in marketing from marketing my athletes. And it affects Ironman financially in that way, then they're forced to actually reconsider their stance. So that's why it will only happen if people, unfortunately, probably boycott the Ironman World Championships, you know, the pros, because yeah. then it might have a negative impact on their fi- on them financially. And then they're forced to actually reconsider what they're doing and potentially make things better for the pros. So is this the kind of thing that you would go, well, next year, I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to take a stand. I'm going to use my platform to do it. Or would it take a Jan Fredino and a Christian Blumenfeld to, to get together to do it? Like it's yeah. In, in theory, it's great. Like, Hey, let's have no pros to show up, but you know, 30 pros don't go the next 30 surely just jump up, up and take that spot and think selfishly about their career. I mean, they could do, but if all, if like the top big names weren't there, then um, you know, it doesn't really, I mean, it's like it's not really got the same impact or, you know, I mean, who knows whether or not the PTO would do a race two weeks beforehand. Mm, you know, what money. happens if the PTO do a long distance race in Europe and it's like a week before Kona and it's got triple the prize money. Yeah, that's what needs to happen. What happens to Kona then, you know, I'm for me, certainly I'm going to do the PTO race for triple the prize money if it's a long distance race, you know, if all the others do that and then it's the week before and you can't really fly to Kona, do you know what I mean? You've done an Ironman, you can't race, fly across the world and do another one the week later. Hmm. What happens then for Ironman if none of, if all the pros that are qualified don't end up racing because there's a, a race the week before with triple the money 
what that what do they do then the next year you know because is Ironman then going to be seen as going to the world championships when everyone turned up to the race has got triple the money and that all the top guys went to you know yeah it's the only way and it shouldn't be a week or two before it should be on the same date pto next year they just need to they need to go they need to sit down in like a little creative uh strategic meeting and go let's just make a pto world championships put it on the same day as kona it's a million bucks to win the male and female race you know try and make it the highest paying race of all time on the exact same date as kona i'm telling you you make it a million bucks to win that race and like, you know, still pretty good prize money all the way down to 20th. No one's going to the Ironman World Championships. Exactly. Why would you? Maybe it's not necessarily the athletes talk and they boycott. Maybe it's something like that that happens. And then that, what do Ironman do then? They can either say, yeah, we don't care about pros and carry on. And that's absolutely fine. You know, they're more than entitled to do that. Or if they feel like it has an impact on their business, maybe they'll come back and things will change um who knows but like i think it's something like that that would need to happen for things to really change or to spark a change yeah and if the pto want to be the big dog in the triathlon scene then they can't do this thing where they they don't directly compete against ironman because at the moment they they seem to just have these races that you can schedule your calendar where you still hit the ironman 70.3 world champs ironman world champs you know ironman frankfurt ironman cans all the big ironmans and do some PTO races. So the athletes can pick and choose, but like P- the PTO yeah. model is not quite sustainable enough for them to compete with a billion-dollar company like Ironman forever. So that's not going to work. At some point, they've got to go, well, do we want to be the number one in this space? If we do, we really have to come in and overthrow this massive monopoly that is Ironman, who have complete control over this sector. Like Ironman is triathlon. So you're not going to stick around and you're not going to be able to just like – uh, become the biggest, the biggest like name in, in in triathlon events. You're going to have to take over, and that that's by going more directly against Ironman. And yeah, it starts with the professionals, and it goes from there. Because you're right, age groupers want to do the big races that are promoted well, that have a bit of like romance and this mystique about them. And professionals make that happen. That's the the only reason Kona is as big as it is, is because of the professional races that have happened over the last 20, 30 years. Yeah, exactly. And I think as well, when you look at it in on, on paper, like the fact that when they have all these gaps in the scheduling, you think, oh, that looks great. You know, there's a race in May that I can do. I can do one in June, you know, or I can do one in July. And then there's like the Cons Cup in August, for instance, you know, and in Kona. But then what actually happens in reality is people can't be in top form all year round. Um, so they have to miss some because, um, well, it's just... They can't, it's just impossible to do them all even be in good form, or they end up getting injured. And what you've seen now is a lot of people are missing, for instance, one of the, say, the PTO races, which have got big prize money. And that's partly because then they're training for Kona, you know, or something like that, or they're training for another race. And um, you've got too many big races almost, say, like a month apart. So, and if you're really doing a big race and you want to do it justice, you need to taper for that. Then you need, then you want to build up gradually. So, if you've got, say, four to six weeks between them, before each big race, a week of that to taper, then you do the race, then you say you take the next five, six days easy after it, all of a sudden you've missed two weeks of training, then you've only got two weeks of training going into the next one before you have to take a week's taper, for instance, and it doesn't really work, I think what you need is three big races, for instance, over the whole year, like you say, and the way that need, that that would happen would be to kind of take on, like, Ironman or Ironman takes on the PTO, you know, whatever way around it is, and they have them, almost have the races, 
on the same not not on, on the same day, but at that time at that certain times of year because people can't people are just unable to do all of the big races. And then it's end up being counterproductive because you don't necessarily get all the big names on the start list in one go because they can't they can't do them all. So they some athletes have to miss certain races. So yeah, moving on from from all of this, it's like something I could just get talking about for for hours and hours. The the difficulty of a professional triathlon and, and making a living as a professional triathlete um, and Ironman's role in that. But how is your how is your training for the Ironman World Champs going to look now? Because you obviously had that that big block at altitude in Fontainebleau with all the big dog triathletes and came off that and had an absolutely amazing performance in Ironman Wales that we still sort of need to chat about a little, a little bit. How is your training between that Ironman and Ironman uh, World Champs going to look? Because that's obviously a really short break between the two races. Um, is it possible to do a really good race at the Ironman World Championships with such a short break between just doing an insane Ironman? Or, and how's your training going to look in that in that little patch? Uh, well, first of all, yeah, I think it's possible to do a really good Ironman in, in Kona, like with four or five weeks after. And um, because I've done it a couple of times before where I've raced like another Ironman four or five weeks after and I've been in the top in like even better form. Um, but one, but then also I have done Wales before and then I raced in Kona and I, I had the edge taken off me and that was in 2019. So I've also experienced that. Uh, but I think I've learned from what I did in 2019. And I think part of that, the reason it took more out of me back then was firstly because I had a run injury and I wasn't back running until August when I did the race. So I only had six weeks of run training. Um, so I think my body wasn't too robust because I had to start off with like one mile runs, two mile runs, you know, the first couple of weeks, you're not really doing too much. So when I did the Ironman, it took more out of me. And then obviously I noticed it in 2019. Uh, secondly, in that year, I did a 12 hour time trial in August. And I think that's probably a similar demand on the body to an Ironman. So it was almost like I did an Ironman in August, an Ironman in September, and then tried to do and then Kona in October. So I've learned from from that. And this year I did a really good build up. Training went really well. I haven't done that many races this year. So I, I was actually I'm actually really fresh at the moment, or certainly was going into Ironman Wales. And then the plan after Wales was to just take it easy, listen to my body for the first, you know, week. If I want if I felt good and the like my the muscles felt good and my body felt like I didn't feel too fatigued, you know, like tiredness and that fatigue you get from an Ironman. It's hard to explain, but you know what I mean, don't you? Like when you've done a big race like that, sometimes you, your legs might not have the soreness, but you might actually feel fatigued within yourself. So listen to my body, see how I feel, play it by ear for this week. Ideally get some decent training if I can, but not force it. Um, it's it's actually turned out all right because I've actually been able to get back into training really from like the Tuesday. I mean, obviously I'm not doing really anything intense, but just getting some volume in and it feels pretty decent. Um, and then traveling to Kona on Tuesday where I'll be out there for like nearly three weeks before the race. So I'll be able to get some like heat training in and like probably 10 days of really good training before tapering before Kona. And that's similar to what I did between Ironman Switzerland and Ironman Chattanooga last year and it worked really really well for that so I felt like I was on a really good level in Ironman Chattanooga so kind of hoping to do like a similar kind of things to what I did uh, before that race. And do you have those 10 days like in the heat of Kona planned out like the 10 quality days of training that, you, that you're going to do do you have what that that training is going to look like sort of like ironed out? Um, I did similar to what I would normally do uh, to be honest, um, 
and what I would like did on like Font Romeo and what I'll do, like what I would do if I was back here. But obviously listen to my body, see how I feel, make sure I don't like get too get depleted in the sun. Um so it could be, if anything, it might be less than what I might want to do, depending on how I feel, because like there's it's not like you can get a massive gain from really pushing it too much and you might end up overdoing it. So if anything, it would be slightly less than what I would normally do. And what exactly will it be like in that, say in that 10 days, let's break it down to just like the first seven days. Like I think everyone can sort of relate to what people do in a week. How much will you do over there on the island in that first week? Like how much swimming, riding and running? And, you know, will you do any like big key Ironman sessions or anything like that? Um, well, on the, I get there on the Tuesday and I'd definitely be doing a decent session on the Sunday, for instance. Like I w- wouldn't mind riding the course, doing some intervals on the bike and then doing a run off the bike on the Sunday. Um, I, I would like to think that I'd be doing a hard bike session on the Friday, which would be like, so I'd get there Tuesday evening. So it'd be Wednesday, Thursday. So it'd be the third day. Um, and then I'll definitely be like swimming, biking and running on the Wednesday and the Thursday. I mean, the Wednesday I'd like to do three or four hours on the bike um a run and a swim but it would be lower intensity you know like i wouldn't be smashing it on the the first day um and then thursday i'd probably do what i would would have done here you know like a a longer run and a swim which would actually be quite good because it would be like an easier day on the thursday and then hopefully by the friday kind of get stuck into some some intervals and stuff like that and then saturday run session and are you thinking about to to sort of circle back to font ramoa i guess a little bit um, and your time training with Gustav and, and Christian, are you thinking about how the race is going to unfold at all at the moment? Are you like, have you like, do you have these ideas of how you think the race will gonna is going to go and and what your training has to has to look like to to make sure that you're ready for what the race is going to throw at you? Like, do you do you think that you have to be able to run like two thirty five to two forty to to be any chance to beat Christian and Gustav on a course like that and and therefore you, you know you've been doing some really good running like you ran a two thirty seven at Ironman Wales so I can only assume your your run training has been pretty solid at the moment and you're in good run form or or is it like are you thinking more that things are going to splinter on the bike and that you're going to have to be really strong there or that there's going to be a league group getaway on the swim like there was at, at St George so your swimming has to be really good like are you thinking about all of this stuff and and if you are what do you think is going to happen? And and if if you're not, then then how do you how do you think about the race at all? If you do, well, I think there's a couple of different things that could happen. Um, starting with the swim, like so, the first thing that could happen would be a group of four or five get away. Uh, Christian and Gustav miss it. I'm obviously going to miss it, and uh, there's a chase from behind trying to catch the front group. Uh, that would be the ideal thing for me because I know I'm not going to be in the front group. Um. The second option or second thing that could happen would be Christian makes the front group and Gustav, I'm not too sure whether or not he could potentially make it, but Christian could potentially make it. And then that would be uh, a bit bad because you'd be on the back foot from the start because obviously you've got to catch Christian on the bike. And then ideally you'd want to probably put some time into him, you know, because you'd want to do that, you know, to to have your best chance of winning. Um, And then with regards to the bike, that could go a few different ways depending on what the weather's like. I think if you get a calm day with not too much wind like we've had the previous years, it comes down to more of a run race and people are really unable to get away because with the 12-metre draft zone, the fact that you can get eight, ten people um, in the last hour of the ride together in that lead group, 
just means that you save too many watts, really, and the people are on too good a level to really break it up. You know, you might get one person going off the front, but people are happy to let someone go off the front if they know they're going to run 10 minutes into them, aren't they? You know, so you might get some people off the front, but whether or not it'd be anyone of note, I don't really know. Um, the second option, which would be the best one for me and which would make it a really good race, would be windy, horrible conditions, you know, crosswinds coming in, breaking it all up. When you get the crosswinds there, you don't really gain much from sitting, I don't, to be honest, if anything, from sitting 12 metres apart because the winds are so strong and they can really, you know, that, um, and the fact that they come across you, that you don't really get as much of an advantage from a pace line as what you would normally. So that really breaks it up. And I think that would be the ideal thing for me. Also, it can help with cooling when you've got them strong winds so you don't get as hot, which would mean I'd be a bit fresher for the run. So that would be my preferred weather choice. Make it a hard bike, split it up, and then obviously on the run, it's just going to take a really good run to to beat the Norwegians, you know, and to beat other people. You know, there's obviously like Magnus Ditlev there who's shown that he's running well. Uh, Patrick Lang's run well in the past. So there's there's not and Patrick's going a bit under the radar because he's run like two thirty eight there, which is the course record. And a lot of people struggling the heat and humidity, and we haven't really seen. I don't think the Norwegians do a really hot, humid race like Kona. So they could run really well, but they could also suffer a lot in the heat. I mean, like we've seen Gomez walk on the Queen K before when he was peak Javier Gomez. Do you know what I mean? Like, and you would have guessed that he would have been someone that would have been good in the heat. You know, he's raced in very hot places in ITU. He's done very well in hot places. Um, yeah, he was, I went ran past him when he was walking on the Queen K. I would have never have guessed that. So the Queen K has bitten a lot of people in the arse. Um, with me, with regards to me, how I'll run in Kona, I really don't know. You know, I'm in good run form, but I know what the heat's like there, and that's always been my limiting factor in the past. So, you know, I'm hoping that I can get heat adapted. I'm hoping that, like, maybe being a bit lighter and in better run form than I have been in previous years helps me. But I really don't know because in the past I've run 10, 15 minutes slower than what I have in cooler conditions, you know, in Europe in the marathon. So it's a bit you know, it could go, it could go either way. And I'm obviously hoping for the best and going to do everything I can to cope with the heat. But it's, it's a bit of an unknown factor, especially having not been there for three years, you know, it's hard to remember exactly what the heat was like. And you kind of underplay it in your mind thinking, how bad can it be? You know, we've had a good summer this year, but I know that heat in Kona when I really think back to it and it is pretty grim. I was going to comment on your your weight, actually, which is a weird thing to say in a normal conversation that's not about long course triathlon or running, isn't it? It's like you don't just say that to someone on their street on the street. But looking at your Instagram, you looked significantly lighter. I, I won't say leaner; you're always real real lean, but you looked significantly skinnier than what I've seen you in the past. Um, and then, yeah, you did run two thirty seven at at Wales, and it was an insane run, which I've said about four times now. It, was that a choice by you? Did you decide at some point, well, if I'm going to run with Christian Blumenfeld and Gustav Eden and guys like that, that, that I need to get skinnier? And, and was that a focus? Like, was it a focus with your diet and, and your training? Or is it just completely, you know, you didn't mean it to happen and it just happened? Or, yeah. Yeah, kind of. Like, I didn't really mean it to happen. I mean, obviously, if it does happen, then it's probably it's probably a good thing. But to be honest, we were, I was just eating really healthy and wasn't eating like a lot of cakes and all that kind of like rubbish while we were out there, partly because the cafes are crap out there. 
so you can't get any decent cafe and coffee stops so you just don't <laughs> like really have them that was part of the reason and secondly because we had my dad like helping with like the cooking and stuff we were just eating really healthy and just doing a lot of training so it just came off like in a natural way you know it wasn't I didn't really try it all I mean I don't even know exactly how much I weigh I just can tell that I'm a bit slimmer than what I was but I couldn't tell you if I've lost one kilo or three kilos you know but I can just see that I'm like slimmer you know with how the clothes fit than what they were before but it wasn't really trying like cutting calories or anything it's just like trying to eat a healthy well-balanced diet and making sure you fuel the training but I think if you're eating good food and you're not eating them really refined stuff so much and like drinking as much alcohol the weight just naturally falls off but I didn't want to like really put a focus on it because I think it might impact my training because then you're more likely to get injured or struggle to recover from sessions and I'd rather train really well than I would cut the calories and sacrifice getting fitter. I mean like I know you've just said that you weren't really focusing on it but what did like when you're at Font Rameau I'm assuming that that's where a lot of the weight came off and and you got a bit a bit slimmer because you said your dad was was the big factor as to why maybe what was a typical day of eating for you like how did it look from from breakfast through to through to when you you finally put your head on the pillow at night? Um, oh god, it's like um, so, so for breakfast, like either you know uh, cereal with like yogurt, some fruit, uh, banana on it, or something like that, you know, and uh, some honey. That could be one breakfast, or either like some peanut butter on toast, depending on what I'm doing, like and how big the first session is. Um, then for lunch, like. Um, I quite like scrambled eggs and avocado on toast. You know, I might have like a bit of a side salad or something with it. Um, and then obviously there's like snacks in between, you know, like some nuts, dried fruit, you know. If I was doing another session later, I'm, you know, I might have like a bowl of granola or something like that with some yogurt. Um, dogs are kicking off. Um, I think the post is about to come. Uh, <laughs> you know, and then... Um, yeah and then obviously like taking the energy stuff as well on the bar on the bike like we were taking like that precision hydration and more and you know went through absolutely shitloads of them was making sure we fueled the training really well um and then recovery drinks movies i was having like after sessions um which i think really helps because i think in the past i've struggled to get enough protein in this actually made me like close to anemic um so i think that really that really helped and then the dinners were always different each time my dad would do like different stuff but we try we'd try and tell him to like get a decent source of carbs in and some like greens or something of some sort if if he can do it um and then for and then i'd have like maybe some more fruit some yogurt or something like that in the evening um i try and have like the odd kombucha if i could if you can get it out there just because i think it's good for your guts um so it wasn't like anything like massive and it was just and yeah we were just snacking a lot to fuel the sessions as well but like making sure we had like decent quality meals really um but yeah it's not anything too scientific i mean none of us are like nutritionists or anything (laughs) just sounds like you weren't eating much junk food really it's like just a super balanced healthy diet isn't it yeah basically that's what it was i mean it was it was similar to what i do back home you know because that's the food that you like but without snacking on crap really Mm. Yeah, I often say that if everyone could just cut out their snacking of the junk food, like imagine how much healthier we'd we'd all be. Like, not many people eat like complete rubbish for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. But 
you know, post dinner for dessert, a lot of chocolate comes out or, you know, when you, when you're a bit hungry in the afternoon, how many people like eat a bag of chips or whatever it is or yeah. So that's pretty much what you've done. It's like, I know you, you said you're not like dietitians and you're not nutrition experts, but God, there's a lot to be said for just about like a balanced, healthy diet, isn't there? And it was literally like four weeks of training, like four to six hours a day, basically. So, yeah. you know, Jesus, like if you don't get lean from doing that, then nothing's going to, is it really? Yeah. You know, like, you got to eat a lot of chocolate <laughs> to not get lean doing that. <laughs> yeah. You've got to accept what you are. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I, I've said, I've mentioned it. This is probably the fifth time now. Um, the, the Ironman Wales race. Can you, can you sort of take us inside that? Can you give me a little bit of a, a race report, maybe to, to sort of end things for today's episode, Joe? Like take me through the the week leading into the race and then the night before and the race morning and then and then just like, yeah, big race report about the, the race day itself. Yeah, yeah, sure. So um, I travelled down from Wednesday, on Wednesday, which is like a six-hour drive for, for me to get there. So quite, quite far considering, you know, it's in the UK. Um, and then got there Wednesday night and then Thursday more. Actually, I went for a run when I got there, like 30 minutes, really easy. Felt, um, felt like crap. Like I was running like five minute K pace. Um, and then Thursday morning I went for a bike ride with fellow, um, um, guy, uh, triathlete from down under Dougal Allen. First time I've seen him since like COVID. He's from, he's from, uh, New Zealand, not from down under. Yeah, I know, but like similar part of the world, isn't it? You know, like <laughs> don't say that, mate. 20, Twenty to thirty hours of travel, thirty hours of traveling to get there. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, like, so, um, but first time I'd seen him for uh, since COVID, um, so actually it was good to catch up. We went for a bike ride on the Thursday and recceed like one of the loops you do twice, which is like the small loop. But on the first lap, you have an extra little loop that adds onto it. So the loop what we recceed was kind of like the main one on the course. And um, it's about 65, 70K. And we did that and it absolutely chucked it down. It was freezing. It was like the first time I'd had to wear like a winter kind of jacket on a ride. Um, and then went for a swim later on the day. He, I think, yeah, I went with him and that went quite well. We felt like we swimming well. He was swimming really well, actually, as well. Like I, that was the best I'd seen him swim. And then Friday did another ride but we wreckied the other part of the course because I said to him, it's a bit sketchy in some bits. And that was into a massive headwind. That was like 70 K as well, because it was into, it was, you have to ride out on part of the small loop to get there. So we did another 70 K ride and did a bit of an effort towards the end of it, just at like around target race pace, um, just to like get a bit of a feel for it. And then off the bike, we did about an eight to 10 K run. It was like one lap. I think it was eight K maybe which was like almost one lap of the run course, but we didn't do the bit through the town, but I just showed him like the main part of it. Cause it's like half the laps almost uphill and half of it's pretty much downhill. So I sh showed him around the course cause I'd done it before. So I remembered it and then went for a little swim again in the evening, but just a shorter one this time, like probably about 1500 to 2k. And then Saturday I only did a run like eight, or 9k i think something like that similar again that was this is with a different guy but a friend from back home whose missus was racing and we pretty much wrecked the run course again um and then put and bike sorted all the bikes out all your nutrition you know and everything like that put the bike in transition and then the next day it was obviously the race and then the race itself was like the sea in the morning was absolutely like carnage you could see it was like rough when you were on top of the seawall looking down so 
you knew it was going to be a pretty tough swim. But got in there, did a warm up, five, six minutes like of swimming and then like a few sprints just to get this up, get myself ready um, for the race. And then obviously when the gun went off, I started moderately hard. Like there was, I knew there was going to be one swimmer, Andy Horsfall Turner, who's a fantastic swimmer. Like he led out of Frankfurt by himself solo and was like leading the race for quite a while. So it was like, well, there's not really any point in me trying to keep with him because it's just not going to happen. You know, I'd be kidding myself. So wasn't really too bothered. And then I could see another swimmer go away, which like start pulling away, which was Harry Palmer. But I was on the wrong side to get on his feet. I was on the far right and he was on the far left. And he got a bit of a gap. And then it was really hard to see where he went because it was so wavy in there that I couldn't see where he went after that. So ended up doing the first lap. And I was with a few other guys like Will Menison, uh, Kevin Morell, two French guys. Like Will Menison's pretty decent. Like he's won some big races before and he's always up there in like the big Ironman races. And when I've, he's made the front pack a few times when I've raced against him and I've managed to get in there. So I knew I was in quite good company. Um, and then there might have been one other person, I think, that got out with us after the first lap. And then the second lap, there was just the three of us, like me and the two French guys that, that that ended up getting out the water together. And we were like five minutes down from the leaders, which was a bit more than what I was hoping. But it was so wavy in there that it was hard to really put a lot of power into the swim. And to be honest, I just settled for sitting on their feet because I was like, I could try and swim it. But it's quite a hassle having to navigate through all the age groupers that are there. And, you know, it's hard to actually put a lot of effort into the swim because one minute you're up on top of a wave, next minute you're getting like slammed down. So I was just happy to sit on the feet and thought, well, there's only two people up ahead. You know, I'm in a really good position here. So it's it's not really going to matter too much. Um, and then when you get out the water in Wales, you have a massive run to transition. It's like oh, it's at least a kilometre run. So you actually have another bag where you have to put a spare set of trainers in and you have to run up this seawall, which probably gains about 30 metres of elevation. You you can either take your wetsuit off or keep it on, whatever you want to do, but you have to put another pair of trainers on. You know, you couldn't run there barefoot. Your feet would be your feet would be totally screwed. So I had a long run to transition and then I managed to leapfrog those other two uh, during transition. So I got out the water in third place um, and then kind of settled into my rhythm, caught Harry Palmer um and actually i said to the guy when i caught when i caught him on the because there was a motorbike that was like getting some coverage for this like channel 4 tv station in the uk and i was like pissing around so i was like waving at him and then he obviously thought oh like this guy's game you know for a bit of chat so he was like talking to me he said oh like how you feeling joe and all this kind of stuff and i said all right all right and then he went away and then he came back a bit later and i could see another rider in front of me i said who's that in front of me because i didn't know it was harry at the time in front of me i only know now because obviously of how the race has unfolded he said that's harry i thought oh bloody hell that's harry palmer is it i said to him are you recording sound he said yeah i said oh i'm gonna junkyard dog him and he said he said what's that i said i'm gonna bark at him like a dog <laughs> and then he said oh he was like laughing he was like all right all right i said make sure you get it on camera when i when i go past him he's like yeah 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 all right all right so he went over to harry and was like milling around there for a bit and i went past him and then uh, give him a proper dog bark when I went past him. And he was obviously like, what the hell's going on? Uh, and I said, Harry, I said, because it was his first Ironman. Uh, he's quite young. I said, Harry, st I said, stay with me, mate. I said, stay with me and you'll be on the podium. He's like, all right. <laughs> so he carried on a bit. Um, and then I think he lost contact after a little while. 
And then I was taking time back to the first place person. I think the last split I had was about three minutes. So I'd taken like two minutes off. But going down a big descent after around 50k, um, my chain just jumped off off the chain ring, got a knot in it, tried to get it out, just couldn't get it out. Some people from the race tried to help. None of us could get it out. And we were, I was there waiting for absolutely ages. They were calling mechanic support, but um, they never ended up coming. In the end, it was like just the marshals that were like, like more marshals were coming over and one of the guys thankfully had a chain splitter so eventually after a lot of messing around doing other things we took the chain off like took the chain apart managed to get the knot out then had to put the chain back you know back on to clip it together and then i was off i thought i lost about 15 minutes at the time 10 to 15 it felt like longer but you always think to yourself it always feels a lot longer than what it actually actually is don't you um it turns out that I think it was 21 minutes in the end. I'd have probably had a heart attack if I'd known it was 21. Um, and I didn't dare look at my watch to see what the exact time that I'd lost was for a while because I, I didn't want to know because I thought there's no positive that can come out of it. It's just going to be a bit, it's just going to be a bit demoralizing, isn't it? Um, and then I was getting splits and the splits were coming down. I actually thought my first split was 14 minutes to the front. And I was thinking, oh, that's not bad. I only lost like 10 minutes. Um, but it was actually 14th place, I think, like, or maybe, yeah, 14th place. Um, that was after a little while, but I, was, I think I was like over 20 minutes when I went through the net. Yeah, I was like, well, I think I was like 24 minutes uh, behind when I went through the next checkpoint, something like that. But I didn't know that until after, until like looking at the athlete tracker, you know, now. Um, but luckily the splits came down and I ended up going up the last hill, which is about three, three no, about six kilometers away from transition. And I got a split saying 15 minutes to the leader. Um, I thought, well, like, that's not too bad. I've taken a decent amount of time off, but it's still a long way. Like, you you know, the ball's in their court kind of thing because I can't really do anything about this. It's just hoping that they blow up because that's the only way I'm going to win, isn't it, really? You know, when you're 15 minutes behind, if they run a solid marathon, then I'm never going to see them, am I? Um, so my fate was in their hands. Um, and it seemed like a long way because as I was coming into town, Andy was on the hill running out he was out the town already and the transitions at the far end of town so I had to bike to the far end of town do transition then run out so I was like oh my god he's miles ahead of me um and then I got a split as well coming out of transition Boris is 10 second place is 10 minutes ahead which I knew was Boris and then I think third place was five minutes ahead of me and then fourth was Dougal who was two minutes ahead and I was in fifth managed to catch Dougal on the first lap after about three miles and I've, I was pretty confident I was going to catch the guy in third for five minutes, but I, but, um, and yeah, I had fantastic legs as well, like coming out of transition, like they just felt awesome. And then I thought in my head, I want to cat take two minutes, two and two to two and a half minutes out of the first place on the first lap. And then I'll be good. Even though it had to average four minutes a lap because I knew that I I would run it pretty strong and consistent. And then I thought with the guy in second place, I want to, run 90 seconds out of him in the first lap because I know I don't really fade too much in Ironman you know I'm really good at judging my effort and pacing it well and I thought there's no point in smashing it you know and going balls out for the first 20k and then blowing up so I kind of just ran in my own pace and the gap came down pretty quick like I think I took five minutes out of Andy on the first lap and maybe three minutes three and a half minutes out of Boris on at the end of the first lap so I was pretty confident even after lap one that I was going to win it because I, I felt like those those two would have probably gone out quicker than what they wanted to, 
Firstly, because Boris might get excited because he won a catch first and also because he doesn't want the gap to come down too quick to me. Um, you know, to, I think, he, to be honest, he'd actually written me off if he was 10 minutes ahead because I would have probably written myself off. And then with Andy, I thought that he was probably going to go out too hard. That's why I thought only two minutes would be good the first lap because I thought he's a Welsh guy. He's running in his home race. He's not done many Ironmans before. Leading Wales as a Welsh athlete is going to be huge. If anything, that's going to encourage you to go quicker than what you might want to because you're excited. So I thought if I took two minutes out of him the first lap, it might be three and a half the next lap, and then maybe five and six, and then the last lap could be as much as like seven or eight minutes if he like you know fades quite a lot. So I was quite confident with how the time splits were, and I just really just kept plugging away, kept in the zone, and the crowd support was absolutely amazing, and just literally ticked off the ticked off the miles one by one and then coming into town at the end of the third lap i took the lead from boris who was actually leading it at that point and then just um had a bit of fun on the last lap because i still felt pretty good and uh was messing around with the crowd and uh was yeah just absolutely delighted to um uh, to get the win like it was probably my best ever ironman performance you know like looking at the numbers that i did and how I felt throughout the day. It just felt really good. It was just a great day. You know, I really hope, like, I feel similar in, in Kona, to be honest. I, I wasn't expecting to feel quite so good. It was quite uh, quite a surprise, really. So, lots of questions, mate. Firstly, well done. That's a fucking mentally tough um, thing you've done uh, to win that race. And, like, there's, some, there's, like, so many lessons to be learned from that. And I hope people took them from it, like, never giving up and backing yourself and... Yeah, like that's just, mate, that's just a, a brave, brave race. So, yeah, well done there. But when you were on that marathon, like the marathon is what won you that race. Yes, your composure on the bike and a pretty good swim for you set you up. But that marathon was fucking insane. Um, one of the best runs in, I would say, in long course triathlon this year. I'm not sure what you think about that. But did you feel like the that what we talked about earlier that being like quite a bit lighter and leaner and like skinnier did you feel different on the run than what you usually do because that's the best run i've ever seen you do in triathlon um i don't know really like i just i felt pretty similar but my legs just felt really good you know that like they just felt like they had loads of bounce in them and spring if you know what i mean um like they just felt really uh really good um but i think like from my experience even when you're racing you're a little bit heavier you don't necessarily feel any better or or too much worse. You just don't run as quick for the same effort. But my legs just felt fantastic, you know, like they're one of them days where they just feel like they've got, they're just full of bounce in them. Like, you know, if if I, if I had legs like that in Kona getting off the bike, it would be amazing because I, I, I don't think they could have felt any better. Do you think that, I mean, I, I don't, it, it's just so hard. Like that race it's your performance was exceptional but the competition wasn't very good compared to what you're going to get at Kona so when you finish a race like that and you go well objectively I think that's my best Ironman performance of all time but how do you think about it like do you go but it doesn't mean that much because no one was really there like Boris Stein was there who's had some good results but there wasn't anyone who's going to win Kona on that that start line except probably you um so how do you think about that race like objectively maybe it's like my best numbers performance in, in an Ironman I've ever had but but how do you look at it based on the, the level of competition yeah like you say I mean the level of competition wasn't nowhere near like what you get in Kona I mean Leon Chevalier was down to race who was six in St George and on them kind of courses them hilly courses like he's won outdoors this year uh, I think he won it by 16 or 17 minutes so he was down to race and that would have been 
a really good challenge. And I was looking forward to that because that would have been a really good tester, you know, because on them kind of courses, he's phenomenal. Um, and that would have been good to see how he went. But in terms of like what you, the confidence you could take from beating people that are going to be in Kona, it's not really like you can take a massive amount because um, like you say, it wasn't a stacked field. But like for me and saying it was one of my best performances, that's just looking at it from a raw numbers perspective, you know, because at the end of the day, if you're putting the good numbers out in on the bigger stage, you're going to be at the pointy end of the race, you know, that literally that if you're putting the power out and, you know, and you can get good speed from that power, you're going to be at the point, you're going to be up there on the bike. And if you're running a good pace per kilometre, it's a good pace per kilometre, regardless of who's there, isn't it? You know, so looking at it purely from the numbers perspective, it was the best I think I've ever done. And then just a, a few more questions from me before we wrap it up, Joe. Um, the bike there... wasn't easy as well, Jack. You know, like you said about when on the bike, like my normalised power was 315 watts for like four, four hours 40 on the bike. Um, that's like up there one of the best I've done and that's like a surgery course as well you know like every hill I'm trying to ride as close to 400 watts as I can like that was my target 400 watts up every single hill for like for nearly five hours you know and then on the flat and draggy bits in between 320 320 watts I was trying to hold and then on the downhills the reason the power was lower is because I'm getting in a tuck you know when you're hitting over 60 k's an hour to 80 k's an hour you're not going to be on the tri bars putting out the power you know you're just in an aero position saving your energy, saving your power, but every hill, 400 watts, that was the target, you know, ride it at 400 watts and you you might be taking some time back, but it's got to be over 350. And I, when I looked at the data, I think I spent 75 minutes of the ride at over 355 watts. You know, when I look on training peaks and you can look at how much time you spent above certain powers. Um, and then, but then also, I think there was about 70 or 80 minutes that was under 220 watts as well. So you can see there's like 80 watts, this zone two or lower, and then 80 minutes, this uh, 75 to 80 minutes, this over 355 watts in the race. So with these numbers being so good and like you're talking about career best numbers and a career best Ironman performance and you're running 237 off a, a bike where the normalized power is 315 watts, which is extremely high. What for you is a like what's a result that you could finish Kona with and be happy with like you've gone to so much effort to get there it's expensive you've called on like on all this help from your sponsors what 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 like what satisfies you on that day like what will you be happy with and 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 i guess on the flip side of that what's what's a fail for you in kona um i'd be disappointed if i wasn't on the podium to be honest like that would be a bit i'd yeah i'd be a bit guide um so definitely want to get on the podium and to be honest like i want to with the form that I'm in, I want to try and have a crack at winning it really. And that's what I've got my, my eyes on is going for the win. I'm going to be racing it for that. But, you know, if I raced it for the win and I ended up blowing up with five Ks to go and not finishing on the podium, if I felt like I give it a good crack and was up there and like it was close to, to potentially winning it, that wouldn't be so bad. I'd want to be, but I want to be at the pointy end of the race and like going for the win and at least like challenging but worst case scenario on the podium, like I'd be pretty disappointed if I wasn't on the podium, to be honest. Like, um, but I mean, it's always hard saying stuff like that because you're talking about how competing against other people and you don't know what form they're in and how they're how they're going. So, you know, I guess maybe if I wasn't on the podium, but I had a really good race, put out some good numbers, had a really good run as well, but was just beaten by better people in the day. I'd probably feel a bit better about that. But if I went there and just didn't perform well and was like 
what out of sorts, you know, compared to what I'd been at Wales, I'd be pretty disappointed and be like, oh God, I shouldn't have done that race, you know, next time. But I would have felt like I'd lost a great opportunity, you know. Um, but I really want to go there, to be honest. And like I'm going there to target the win, really. That's that's how I'm going to be racing. And like my race strategy is going to be what will give me the best chance to win it. Whereas in other years, I've gone there and I've kind of thought, you know, the first time when I got top 10, if I'd have got a top 10, that was a breakthrough performance. And then the second time I wanted to be kind of up there, but I didn't really feel like I was in the form to win it. Whereas like, I feel like with the form I'm in at the moment, that a win isn't out of the question, you know, and that's, that's how I feel mentally about it. So that's how I'm going to, that's what I'm going to be shooting for. And um, if I get it, then that would be fantastic. But if I didn't and still had a great race, then that would be okay. <laughs> I love that, mate. And I love that you just, I love that you're not afraid to say it because so many people are afraid to put it on the line like that. I fucking love that. And it makes me so much more excited to watch you race that day. Like, if you had have come to me then and said, you know, look, I'd be happy with a top 10 or whatever. I'd be, if I was in the top 10 in like sixth place, I'd be devastated, to be honest. Like, I'd be really, really disappointed with myself and feel like I'd lost a great opportunity. Jeez, I love that. Like, that would be a very disappointing result, to be honest, for me. Like, if I'm not on the podium, it's going to be, I'll, I'll have thought that that was a failure, to be honest. You know, unless there was a mechanical or something that went completely wrong that was out of my control, do you know what I mean? But from a pure performance point of view, I'd be a bit disappointed if I wasn't, I'd be disappointed if I wasn't on the podium, you know, with how I feel at the moment. Just because, like, I know the form that I was in last time when I was at Wales, and that got me sixth place in Kona. And then I know the form that I was in and I know how poorly I raced in Kona in comparison as well, you know, to what I did at Wales. So as this time, I was a lot quicker than what I was at Wales. I've recovered way quicker than what I was at Wales, you know. So it, if, I, if you can only go from what you've done in the past, can't you? And I know people might say the level's higher now and it probably is higher now. But then my level's also gone up a lot as well since last time I was in Kona. So, you know, I don't know how much... Well, I, and, I, and I've not really raced against any of the other guys that are favourites in an Ironman. So it's hard to know how this would compare to them because I've not raced, you know, for instance, Christian did um, St. George this year and he did um, Cottonmouth before. I mean, to be honest, actually, I raced against Christian in sub seven. And to be honest, I got a lot of confidence out of that because I know what my fitness was in sub seven and I was only three minutes behind. And I know what my fitness is now and I'm way stronger in all three disciplines. And if I was only three minutes behind in sub seven, then that gives me the confidence that I can win it. I've got four more questions. So I'm going to try, try and remember more. I'll try not to take too much time inside these four questions. But my first one is just based off what you're saying then. What, what is it that you think has changed that's got you to this form? Is it more of the same? Is, is the weight a bigger factor than we're giving it credit for and being that little bit lighter is giving you such a better power to weight ratio and, and making you a much faster runner for the same effort? And, and I mean, I guess with this, between now and, and Kona, what do you do to ensure that on the day you feel as good as you do now? Is it, is it the weight? Is it just not doing too much? Is it doing more of the same? Is it what, what do we need to do to make sure that nothing happens between now and then that sabotages the race? Uh, probably not doing too much and killing yourself, but doing just literally doing more of the same, but listening to your body as well. You know, you've got to think that like I'm traveling over there. I've done an Ironman. I'm going to be doing a transatlantic flight, uh, 11 hours time difference. There's a lot of heat. So really listening to your body and being smart. But I, I like to think that I'm quite good at listening to my body and seeing how I feel. You know, I mean, I coach myself. So I'm always in tune with how I feel and not afraid to like change training sessions around. Whereas a lot of people that are coached by someone, 
they might feel obliged to do a certain training session when they first get to Kona or, you know, get, get into it. And then they don't listen to their body as much and they're maybe more likely to overdo it. Whereas I like to think that I'm really good at, I'm really in tune with listening to my body and like not afraid to like change things. So be smart like that. Um, and then going back to your other question about like what has made for the, for the better performance, I think a lot of it is doing more of the same, being consistent, literally the same things you hear everyone harp on about really uh knowing what works for you know i've been doing this for so many years now like i mean they say hindsight's a wonderful thing and i wish i knew now i wish i knew 10 years ago what i know now and i could have been so much better but you know i don't and there's nothing you can do about it and i guess there's probably loads of other people that have you know retired from professional sports and thought if only i'd have known why at the end of my career you know at the back at the start i could things could have been so much better but um that is what it is. And then secondly, in terms of like what's helped me now is I had COVID at the start of the year. So that so I had to take a back seat then. And then when I got married at the start of July, I hadn't really done much. You know, I'd done sub seven, but that was in like suboptimal form, you know, because I couldn't do too much because of the recovery from COVID and a, a GI illness that I got when I got back into training. So I've had a good build up for Kona and I'm pretty fresh, you know, I've not really done that much this year you know after sub seven i haven't raced so you know I, my last race was june so that's at that's an age isn't it you know in the season for a professional triathlete you know so like july august september you're talking three months i went without racing um where i got into a decent block of training i've managed to get like the guy mark who helps me with training and pacing me and you know that is really good because for instance when i do the run sessions i don't necessarily get carried away with running reps with other people and like going too hard too slow like mark's on the bike he can always push me but he can help you put he can push you to the speeds that you want to go to be to get the most out of your training and not like pushing you like someone else where your ego might get involved and you like run tempos at like a threshold pace and you call it a tempo you know but it's not really you know so being smart with the training and being consistent but to be honest, I don't really feel like I've done anything too hard in training. It's just really is the simple fact of just keeping it simple and prioritizing recovery between sessions and just the boring stuff that you hear people say. It's just, I'd love to tell you it was something really exciting that I've changed, but um, unfortunately it's not. <laughs> and then my next of the, the four questions, well, you actually answered one of them. So I've got two more for you. With with that that time at Font Rameau where you were you were seeing like what Christian and Gustav were doing, people people think of those two as unbeatable right now. I think without Jan Fredino in the race, people think that it's almost a foregone conclusion that one of the Norwegians is going to win. Have you seen anything? You talked about the sub seven project, but have you seen anything in your time training in the same place as them that makes you think these guys aren't unbeatable or? Or when they train, do they make you go, oh, fuck, maybe maybe I can't beat these guys? Like, How is your mindset, because you've been around them in, the, in person when, you've, when they've actually been training, you see what they do, you talk to them about what they do, does it give you more or less confidence of beating them? Well, I'll tell you, their pizza game is strong, mate. Like, they, them boys can put it away, you know, uh, I'll tell you that. And uh, if they race as well as what they eat pizza, then uh, they're going to be very tough to beat. Um, <laughs> But um, <laughs> in in looking at their training, I mean, to be honest, I didn't see 
a massive amount of what they were doing. You know, I'd see them in the pool and stuff, but I had no idea what they were doing. I could just see them swimming along. Um, and then you might occasionally, you know, you might sit. I did, we didn't really go for a ride. I don't think we went for a ride out there and it was only one run. So it's hard for me to comment and say like, oh, whether or not you think you could beat them from what you've seen in training because they were training there. But a lot of the time, we didn't do it with them you know they were doing their own thing but i definitely think they're beatable i mean everyone's got two arms two legs you know christian was beaten in an itu race wasn't he like a week or two ago you know um so he wasn't unbeatable in that was he i mean and everyone says that someone's unbeatable until they're not unbeatable do you know what i mean like alistair brownlee was unbeatable at short course at one point wasn't he until he wasn't you know Jan Fredino, unbeatable at Ironman until he's until he's beaten. You know, everyone's unbeatable until they're not, you know. But at some point that's gonna happen. And there's no reason it can't happen this year, you know. Like, so um yeah, I've just got confidence because I genuine genuinely believe that everyone is beatable at you know, at some point, you know, before they were unbeatable, they were getting beaten, weren't they? You if, know. If it bleeds, it can die. Yeah, like 2018, 2019, they were getting beaten a lot, weren't they? So um why can't they get beaten now if they were getting beaten before? And then my last question is is just the the last thing we haven't co- covered from the introduction that I did at the start. And it's something I've been thinking a lot about this week because of the guest I had on last week, Sam, Sam Laidlow. And it's it's drama in triathlon and beef in triathlon and smack talk in triathlon. Now, Sam mentioned you in that episode as a guy that he really targeted a couple of years ago and he went after and had one of his worst races ever. And and you had a very good race. And he, he sort of hypothesized that maybe – his shit talk to you in the lead up to that race made you a lot stronger that day. And he sort of did the, said the same thing. He, he then went really hard on Sam Long and Sam Long had one of his best performances he's sort of had in the last few months. And so he wonders like, oh, you know, even though this is building a bit of hype behind me, making people know about me, does it just make people race harder against me? Where do you sit on the, on the whole shit talk and, and making a name for yourself in triathlon based off, you know, talking some smack and, and, and going after people and creating rivalries. Do you see it as good for the sport or bad for the sport? Do you wish that people didn't do it? Do you like it? Does it make you more interested in following people and more excited to watch races? Well, I've got a couple of things uh, about that. So, yeah, he gave me a lot of smack talk before Bolton last year uh, and was, you know, um, giving me a lot of abuse and, like, and uh, I mean, it was like, I kind of took it as a bit lighthearted, you know, I mean, I, I did think bloody hell, like it was this at the time, but it definitely did make me race harder because I was like, this fucking guy's not beating me, you know, like there's no way I'm going to let that happen. And, and, you know, that was what I thought meant in my mindset. So I was like, I'm definitely going to be racing harder. So it de- I would say it definitely did help me race, race the game. But it did kind of make a bit more excitement about it for me as well, because it was like, God, I really want to have a have a good race. Um, so that was from a personal point of view. Um, but then after the race, like you kind of like I feel like you kind of forget it and you you kind of like shake their hand and stuff, you know, but like it definitely did make me raise my game. So I would say that he probably is like inspiring others who he says it about to to beat them because i think that's only natural isn't it you know i mean imagine if someone was giving you a load of shit talk at a running race and you knew that you were probably fairly similar in ability you're going to be like i'm going to fucking push it even harder to make sure i beat this guy aren't you you know where if he's really nice to you and really friendly you might be like oh you know like i wanted to beat him but he beat me but he's a nice guy do you know what i mean um in terms of like actually watching it like i can say the one race that I was only really bothered, really, really wanted to watch for the Collins Cup 
And we were in Fontremeau for this. And like all of us that were out there said the same thing, you know, like who I was staying with was Sam, Sam Long, Sam Laidlow and Lionel Sanders. Like for me, it built up a lot of hype. I knew that because I knew what it was like to be on the receiving end of that. And I really didn't want to lose. And I knew that Sam Long and, and Lionel Sanders would really not want to lose. Sam Laidlow's not going to want to lose because he's the one that's been given all the smack talk. So he doesn't want to seem like it backfires on him. So for me, that was the one race that I really, really wanted to to watch. Um, but it depends on like, I mean, some people, I think it's quite a polarizing thing. Some people love it and like what like watching it. I kind of like watching it. I think it's quite interesting to see how people respond and like, and it kind of builds a bit of hype for me. But I know some people think that triathlon is not the place for it. And, you know, we should be like, I read a comment from someone the other day on Instagram and said that, we shouldn't be doing smack talk in triathlon. It's not UFC and that we should be going down the longs more down the lines, more of like the formula one drive to survive and be applauding people. And, you know, more of like inspiring people to do the sport, which like, I mean, that was on the meme that I made Joe. That was on my Instagram. Oh, was it on that meme? Was it? That yeah, was, that David was Tilbury Davis, yeah, it was it? David they, Tilbury Davis, who is Lionel Sanders ex coach. He's a Canadian co- triathlon coach. And, like I like David. I actually I want to get David on the podcast for a chat. I think he's a, a really funny sort of like dry sense of humor guy. I, I I like him, but that was a bit dinosaur of David. I thought he was like every every sport wishes they had Netflix Drive to Survive. It's not going to happen. Like triathlon's not going to get the next Drive to Survive. We're not getting a like million and millions. I haven't millions. even seen it, so I don't even know what. <laughs> it's like, like the number one sports documentary of all time. Like triathlon's just not getting that. So it's just it's silly. What do you what do you think in terms of like the smack talk? Like like did you like do you like watching it? Does it build up more hype for you? Like, I mean, were you interested in seeing how I guess the general thing of whether or not it works is are the normal triathlon fans interested to see who was gonna win out of Lionel Sanders, Sam Long and Sam Laidlow, basically, isn't it? You know, if that didn't inspire you to watch it, then yeah, maybe the smack talk didn't really work and it didn't really build up any hype. But if you were like, I can't wait to see this race then surely that answers the question, doesn't it? It built a lot of hype and people really wanted to see it. Exactly. And like, I'm a triathlon fan. I'm a true triathlon fan. Like I watch a lot of triathlon. Like I, I would I would watch, I would say I would watch at least 50 triathlon races a year, which I, I reckon is more than the average triathlon fan. Like I think a lot of triathlon fans don't actually watch a lot of triathlon. They might watch the odd event here and there, but mo- they I, I always say this, they consume most of their triathlon media through Instagram and maybe a bit of YouTube. Um, how many people are sitting down and watching an Ironman live or how many people are sitting down and watching every IT, ITU race every year? Not many, I don't think. And and I hate the Collins Cup. I think it's such a shit concept. I I hate it. And I, I think P, the PTO are close on so many on so many things they do, but the Collins Cup is not one of them. It's like, it's it, I can't get, I just cannot get invested in it. Nothing about that format makes me excited to watch it. It just, it seems all just, just wrong. And And so I was sort of like, I'm not even going to watch this. I was looking at the matchups like, I just can't, I don't really care. I, I hate this format. Like it was on a weird time. It was on during the middle of the night in Australia. I'm like, oh, just, I'm just not going to do it. But guess what? The Sam Laidlow, Sam Long and Lionel Sanders thing happened. And I watched the Collins cup. It was the only reason I watched it. And it's like, I'm just a little interested to see how this plays out. That was all. And like, I wasn't even really following along on Instagram or anything. Like I had no interest in it but I started following along on Instagram and I went and watched the PTO YouTube video that, that had the, you know, behind the scenes of what happened in that. It got me, it got me interested. Now 
I don't look at that and think like, oh, this is good for the sport or bad for the sport. I look at it and think, oh, this is fun. This is an entertainment. Yeah, it's entertaining, isn't it? It's exactly what I think. I don't think of it as like it's good or it's bad. It's just, oh, it was just funny, wasn't it? You know, you watched it and you thought, oh, that was a bit of an overreaction, but like he's obviously pissed off and he's hit a nerve. Like what's going to happen? You know, kind of yes. thing, wasn't it? You know, like um, one of the things with the Collins Cup is I think that they need to not have appearances and it needs to be a bit more prize money based if they're going to do it. And also the problem is they try and match people up that are too even which on paper they think will make exciting races, but it doesn't because then as soon as there's a gap between them, they've all got similar strengths and weaknesses that no one can close the gap back up. You know, like they put all the runners together, but then if one of the runners gets a gap on the bike, then they've got it because they're all really good runners, you know, whereas actually you need to have more mixed matches. But like you say, I, I think it would be good to just have like everyone racing, mass start, invite only, however they want to do it with a load of prize money and just have another big, race to be honest yeah this is what they need to do and it goes back to what we talked about earlier don't call it the collins cup silly name no one knows anything about what it means get rid of that get rid of the format get rid of one of your other races that pays way too much money put them together call it the professional triathlon organization world championships put it on the same day as kona no one cares about the collins cup imagine how much hype there would be if you combine the, the prize money appearances or like production put all of that money scrapped another one of their races, put all that money in and make a world championships that competes with Kona. I would, I'd just be so invested in that race, put everyone on it racing together, make it whatever distance you want as close to, don't make it Ironman distance because I'll probably get sued, but make it as close to it as you can go, you know, make it 170 Ks, four Ks and you know, a, whatever, a 40 K run or whatever it is. They could probably go a marathon there. And then just, and then like, like how much more excited would you be about that race? And then imagine if there was like a heap of the theatrics, like they could put all their, their production costs from two races into that. And they could do so much like good press. They could do press conferences. They could get people in the rooms together and do head to heads. Imagine like leading into a, like a PTO world championships. If they did like a, a head to head where you sit, sit like two athletes across the table from each other. And they did like Christian and Jan Fredino. And there was like just a, a mediator in the middle who asked questions and then just let the two athletes talk to each other. Imagine if you did that with, you know, Lionel Sanders and yourself. Imagine if you did that with Sam Laidlow and Sam Long. And like, imagine if triathlon spent more time on, Hey, how do we make people care about this race? and not thinking about like funky formats that don't really change whether people are invested or not. Put a big title on the line, get all the good people there, build hype. Just seems so obvious to me. Yeah, no, that sounds like a, a really good idea. And I, I, I think that would be like, that would make it definitely so you'd want to watch it, wouldn't it? And uh, they need the guy to ask decent questions because the guy they had in the Collins Cup was asking people, what's their favourite movie? What oh, kind of like, mate. what kind of animal would they be? And it's like, man, we don't want to hear this. Like, you know, this isn't like getting me excited about the race. Like it was horrendous. The questions were absolutely shocking, you know? So they need to get people asking decent questions, to be honest, what people want to hear, you know, and um, getting stuff out of them. I mean, it's not hard to get a bit of back and forth between two athletes because you just ask someone, do you think you can win the race? If there's three of them, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. And if they say, yeah, then you can say to the other person, he thinks he's going to beat you. What do you have to say about that? And then, well, you know, all of a sudden you've got it. It's just pretty simple, it's isn't it? It's not rocket you know? science, is it? It's not brain surgery. Not rocket science, yeah. <laughs> uh, they need us running the PTO. We'd have it solved in one day, Joe. 
Yeah, <laughs> put the world to rights while we're at it. <laughs> <laughs> One of us will run for president next. Hey, uh, yeah, that, that was a good episode, mate. I, I just love talking triathlon with you. That's why I got you back on as one of the very few like i reckon we've only had a handful of um of repeat guests on this show and and the reason why i asked you to come back on is exactly what we what we just you know did for an hour and a half there just a great triathlon chat with someone who knows a fuckload about the sport is invested in it and and just gets it so yeah i can't thank you enough for coming back on mate i always love hearing about your training and your your no nonsense nonsense approach you know no secrets approach and mate i'm so pumped to watch you watch you at kona and I'm so much more pumped because you've put something on the line. And, and, and I was just thinking, speaking of all this, like building hype, what are you going to do in the lead up to Kona to make sure that people care about whether you finish on the podium or not? Oh God, to be honest, I haven't really thought about that. You know, I've literally just been thinking about concentrating on my training and, you know, performances. I've not really thought about like uh, building up hype in any particular way, you know, to be honest, just, uh, just trying to, um, you know, concentrate on my own performances to be honest to be honest like I, I i'm not really if it if it happens it happens you know if it doesn't it doesn't like in terms of like the building up the hype for that but i'm i just want to do my best race you know and like try and, and try and win it and if i win it like i don't really care about like whether or not it's got the hype like that because uh it's been a it's, it's a dream to try and win the world ironman championships and just being able to do it for myself would be um would be enough regardless of what anyone else might think, you know, like that, you know, just to be able to say when I retire, I managed to win the race and like all the big hitters were there. So like, I don't, if, if, it, if it did build up any hype between people, then it does, but you know, I just want to do everything I can to, to do it for myself, you know, if anything. Yeah. I can't wait, mate. I'm um, yeah. I'm genuinely excited to watch you race after this chat. I hope for your sake and yeah, I couldn't, it couldn't happen to a better bloke if you do get a good result. So I'll be following along and I'm sure a lot of people after listening to this will be will be backing you as well, mate. So, yeah, you've got us watching along. Cheers, mate. Thanks very much. Awesome. Have a good uh, rest of your day, mate. And, uh, yeah, hopefully we chat next time to you as a as an Ironman World Champs champion. How good would that be? That'd be awesome. Uh, got a, uh, my mate here as well while you're there. Like, can you see it? Say, what was that? Got my mate in the video. Can you see it? <laughs> Why do you, for, this obviously doesn't go out in video, but Joe has one of the girliest dogs I've ever seen. This dog was good for 15K runs. No, it like wasn't. Screen, it's screenshot, like, screenshot that. And you can put that on there. 15K should do. Wait, how do, I, how do you screenshot on Zoom? I don't know. <laughs> I know people can't do it. But yeah, she'd do 15Ks before she had her back operation. Mate, she's like, for everyone who knows, it's literally one of those little fluffy dogs that you like put in your handbag if you're a girl. Oh my God, he's got two of them. <laughs> this, one, this, one, this one's a beast, mate. 15K. No, it's, it's the same dog. It's just got, just got blonde hair, not black hair. They're both just little fluffy girly dogs. She was his uncle. She's his auntie. But this one is an absolute weapon, mate. Honestly, <laughs> he, he can sprint. He can hit over 20 miles an hour on a sprint. So we can do... A 10-second, 100-meter sprint if he wants. Like at least <laughs> no, it can't. Yeah, honestly, he can do that. And he can run uh, – he can. He's, he would have done a sub-17 minute 5K, but he got told uh, he had to be on a lead and he lost his rag. His, he mentally uh, broke down and didn't want to carry on. But he, he's good for – what are you good for, mate? Four-minute K pace, aren't you? You're on the trails for a good 10, 11K off no training. <laughs> I just wish people could see this dog to realize how unbelievable this sounds, mate. They look like they haven't run a day in their life. I'll send a picture to you. Yeah, do that. And you can, 
I've got I've got I've, I've got a little video of me running with him. Mate, he does the track sessions every Saturday with me. Oh yeah, I actually have seen I turn him. Up to the track. Every Saturday he turns up to the track and he does it. And the more tired he goes, the more he cuts the bend off. So towards the end, when he's pretty smashed, he like <laughs> he does the straight and then just runs straight across. But at the start, he's he's going for it. He does like K reps, threshold sessions. He does it does it all, mate. <laughs> That's so funny. I can't believe you have dogs like that. I wouldn't have picked. I thought you would have had one of those little British bulldogs or something, not little um, uh, like legally blonde in your in your handbag dogs. <laughs> legally. <laughs> <laughs> All right, mate. Hey, he's a weapon. He's a weapon. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he looks like he sleeps in bed with you, I reckon. <laughs> he tries to. <laughs> All right, mate. I'll leave you to it. All right. See you later. Thanks again. Good luck with your train and don't get injured. Cheers. See you, mate. Yeah.